The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we're thinking about how we think and examining how we talk to ourselves and what's happening when some of us hear voices that aren't there. Hello and welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is Charles Ferniehoe, a writer, psychologist, and professor of psychology at Durham University with interests in child development, memory, and hallucinations. He is the author of several books, including Pieces of Light, The New Science of Memory, A Thousand Days of Wonder, A Scientist's Chronicle of His Daughter's Developing Mind, and his newest book, The Voices Within, The History and Science of How We Talk to Ourselves. He is the director of Hearing the Voice, an interdisciplinary study of voice hearing. Charles, welcome to Science for the People. Hi, thanks for having me. So I have to admit, when I saw the topic for this book, uh, The Voices Within, I was both surprised and immediately intrigued. I, I don't think I had any idea there was research being done on how we talk to ourselves. And there wasn't really. When I was starting out in this topic in the 1990s, in particular, there wasn't a huge amount of work on what we call inner speech, which is the stuff that we do silently in our heads. I got into the topic through an interest in private speech. Now, private speech is when you see people talking to themselves, but out loud, and you particularly see it in children. And my PhD, in fact, was on the asking questions about why children talk to themselves, what benefits it brings them and so on. And I got interested in a particular theory, which says the stuff that we do in inner speech, that internal silent conversation, actually develops out of private speech. And so by looking at one, you can understand something about the other. The problem with inner speech, of course, is that it is unobservable. I can't tell what you're thinking. I can't measure it. I can't record it or or anything like that. So I've got to use indirect methods of getting at it. And one of the things that we can do is look at private speech and see if, the, if that gives us some clues to how inner speech works. So uh, there are many different ways in which we think, but this book particularly looks at the way we think linguistically. So why focus on that particular aspect of our thought patterns? When you ask people about their regular inner experience, the kind of thing that goes through their heads as they're walking to work or waiting for a bus or lying in the bath. People often say, many people say, that a lot of the time there are words there, there is language going on in their head. Uh, some people say they do it all the time. So it seems to be a big part of our psychology. And then that raises interesting questions about why we do it. What's it for? Where does it come from? What is it like? And so on. And so there is the body of research that's grown up over the last 20 years or so, has been starting to explore some of these questions in greater scientific depth than was previously possible. It does seem, like you mentioned before, a really difficult thing to study with any kind of, of rigor, since it, it is entirely subject, uh, entirely subjective and, and happening inside our own heads. It, it seems like a very difficult thing to approach to study in any kind of meaningful way. It is, and it isn't a topic that I was particularly encouraged to apply myself to when I was starting out. And even now, I would say to people, you know, there, it is a tricky topic to explore. But there's much more that we can do now than when I was starting out. We have lots of different methods now for getting at inner speech. One of the things that we can do is ask people. We can say to them, what's your experience like? 
But we also know that simply asking people the question, do you talk to yourself, can sometimes elicit more along the lines of generalizations about how we think our minds work rather than what is actually going on. And so we have more developed, more sophisticated methods for sampling people's experience and finding out about inner speech that way. There are other more experimental things we can do as well. So, for example, if inner speech is important in what we do with our minds and brains, then knocking it out, stopping it, should have an impact, a negative impact on our performance on a particular task. So you can use what psychologists call a dual task paradigm, where you give people two tasks to do, not just one task. You give them the task you're interested in, which is the, the thing that you think might inner speech might be important for. And then you give them a secondary task, which is meant to knock out their inner speech. So you can then look to see whether knocking out inner speech impairs performance on that first task. That sounds a little bit complicated, but it's a nice experimental method for looking to see just how important and effective inner speech is. The idea of asking people what they're thinking is particularly particularly intriguing to me because I don't think a lot of people really think about how they think. Um, and I certainly hadn't thought about it that much until reading this book, because uh, you explain a little bit of some of the methodology that goes into collecting some of this data. Um, and that made me think a lot more about the ways in which I think, which was quite interesting. So can you talk a little bit about the DES beeper method, um, which is one of the ways that you try and collect data about how people think? Sure. DES stands for Descriptive Experience Sampling. And it's a method that's been devised by a psychologist based at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, called Russ Hurlbert. And he's been working on this method for several decades. And we were lucky enough to work with him on some studies relating to inner speech and some other topics as well. It starts with the assumption that we're not very good at doing what you've just described. We're not very good at thinking about our own experience, at thinking about our own thoughts. It's a very difficult thing to do, partly because we bring all sorts of preconceptions. You know, you hear people going around saying, oh, I talk to myself all the time, or, oh, I'm a very visual thinker. That's all fine. You know, we do, we're bound to have preconceptions about how our minds work, but it's hard to cut through that stuff to what's actually going on. And what DES tries to do is do just that, to cut through to what's actually going on by doing what we call experience sampling. So what you do here is you simply interrupt the flow of consciousness from time to time with a probe, with a beep in this case, and you ask people to report on what was going on just before they were probed, before they were beeped. It's a very difficult thing to do. The key thing about DES is that it does it in much more detail than other methods do. It allows you to say exactly what's going on in your mind rather than the experiment of forcing categories on your experience. But also it's iterative. And what that means is that you do it again and again and again. If you sign up to taking part in a DES study, you'll be in coming in and out of the lab for five days or so. And each day you'll be getting some beeps, which will be delivered to you through an earpiece from a little beeper that you wear on your attached to your clothing. You'll be making notes on those moments of experience. And you'll be coming into the lab and having an in-depth interview about those tiny moments of experience. And it's a very hard thing to do when you start off. Most people are pretty bad at it when they start off, but people get better. And it's been fascinating to use this method 
and to watch people getting really, really being able to hone in and zoom in on moments of experience and focus on what was there, not on all the other stuff that's, that's fluttering around. So part of the problem with capturing this data seems to be that we aren't very good at thinking about thinking and we have to sort of be trained to think about it in, in more than just metaphorical terms. I think training is a, a tricky word. I mean, since the time of William James and probably before, people have recognized that thinking about thinking bears a risk of changing the thought itself. And one of the criticisms that's leveled at this method is maybe the process of paying more attention to your own thoughts actually changes the thoughts. I think that's possible. I think it's likely to happen in some way, but I don't think it fundamentally changes things. I think it's the best method that we've got. But yeah, you're right. It is very difficult to think about one's own thoughts. William James talked about how it was like trying to turn up the gas quickly enough to see how the darkness looks. Yeah, that old adage of trying to open the refrigerator before the light goes on. Exactly. I don't think it is that difficult. I think it's a tricky thing to do, but I think methods like DES get us somewhere closer to where we want to be than we than other methods previously have done. But also it's important to use other methods alongside it. So part of this process, uh, there's a part that, that takes place when the beep goes off sort of in the immediate moment um, as someone jots down a note or makes some notes about what they were thinking at the time or how they were thinking. But there's also a second piece to this, which is sitting down with the researchers later on and looking at those notes and recalling what happened and sort of a conversation or an in-depth interview about those moments. That also seems to be tricky because then there's, a, of course, a danger of any preconceived notions from the researcher uh, causing some misunderstanding of, of what's happening here, too. So it really comes from both sides. That's a common uh, point that's made about DES. And all I can say is that having done it and having seen how the interviews are conducted, I think they are as non-leading, sorry, that's not a very attractive <laughs> term, but <laughs> they don't they don't lead the interviewee in any way. And I'm amazed at how well Ross Hurlbert can do this, how he can completely, in, in philosophy, in, in phenomenological philosophy, they talk about bracketing presuppositions. It means sort of saying, here's what we think is going on. Let's put that to one side and look at what's actually going on. And part of that is not imposing any agenda on the interview. So, it's not as if I'm going into the interviews and saying, I want to find out about your inner speech. I'm going into the interviews saying, tell me what's there. If there's some inner speech there, great, we'll talk about it. If there's some visual imagery there, great, let's, we'll talk about it. We'll let what is captured in the moment determine the agenda. And so to use another slightly unwieldy term, we call DES open beginninged. Doesn't mean it's not the same as open-ended. It's in comparison to open-ended. The idea is that the beginning is open. There's no agenda about where to start. You start with what the person says about that moment of experience. And it's a fascinating thing to take part of, take to take part in. And I wish more people could do it. And all I can say is that from my own experience, it will be hard to be any any less leading in terms of the questions that you ask. If it's done properly, if it's not done properly, then, of course, all those 
preconceptions will creep in and you, you'll end up with something that's not particularly useful. And that's one reason why it's very hard. You can't really do it on yourself. You need that interviewer. You need the interviewer who's got no agenda, no particular knowledge of you, not isn't trying to find out anything in particular, but is just ready to listen to you saying what you experienced in that moment. One of the cautions you bring up a couple of times in the book is how we often use the idea of an inner voice kind of metaphorically to communicate complicated ideas, thoughts, or, or experiences. Um, authors and poets, for example, can often use the phrase, heard a voice in my head, kind of in a way to describe a sudden inspiration, which is different from the way someone heard a voice if they're experiencing something like a hallucination. So, do you, how do you as a researcher researching this topic try to parse some of those metaphors from the experience in those cases? The metaphors are often very interesting. The metaphors are often well worthy of study in their own right. But you've got to be aware of when people are talking metaphorically as much as you can. So when people, I, I prefer to use the term inner speech because it's something concrete I can define. When people talk about the inner voice, I don't know whether they're talking about some sort of gut instinct, some sort of emotional murmuring, whether they're talking about artistic inspiration or whether they're talking about inner speech. And when you look at examples of when people have talked about an inner voice, you, as much as possible, you can try and pick it apart from the description of the experience. So Mahatma Gandhi, for example, had a voice telling him to take up a particular fast and I went and I tried to find this reference in his autobiography and I and I really tried to pin it down and he was actually talking about something that had the quality of a voice it was something that was heard it was something that was an act of communication whereas other examples of so-called inner voice are really just about your body telling you something or your conscience telling you something all of which is interesting but you've got to sort of try and you know draw a line around the thing that you're that you're studying, that, that your your topic of interest. It is so interesting to, because we talk a lot on this show about things we can really reliably measure or data we can kind of collect in a definitive way. But something like this, which is, I think, definitely worthy of study, is you sort of have to come at it a different way. And, and you can't, it's not just there, a thing you can pick up and look at. You have to kind of get at it through, I guess, like a back door or a, I don't know if that's a good analogy to use. Well, I certainly think that sometimes you have to use indirect methods. But as I also mentioned, it's important to use methods in conjunction. So one of the things that's been particularly exciting to me about this work is it's making me think about the, the way we go about doing cognitive neuroscience. In other words, the branch of science that tries to connect what's going on in the brain through, for example, brain Im imaging to what's going on in experience and behavior. And I think we've been pretty good at working out what's going on in the brain. We've used the best, you know, we've used the newest methods in incredibly ingenious ways. And we, we know what, you know, clusters of neurons are doing from moment to moment. But we've not been very good at reporting on the thing that William James was interested in, that I'm interested in, that subjective experience, that feeling of what it is like to be in a particular moment. And one of the things I've been most excited about in my work in the last few years has being able to tie the incredibly rich method of DES with the power of fMRI or, or neuroimaging. So if you can show that someone's having is reporting a particular quality of experience and they've been allowed to define it in the way they wanted to define it. And if you can show then what was going on in the brain at that moment, knowing that the brain activations weren't 
contaminated by the beep that's just gone off because the, what we're interested in is what happened just before the beep. You've got a very powerful way of trying to connect that subjective experience with the objective facts of what's going on in the brain. So given the research that's been done and uh, the information that we currently have, how similar or dissimilar are the ways most people think and talk to themselves in their heads? I mean, is there a wide variation from person to person or or does the experience seem to be generally quite similar or maybe fit into one or two kind of categories? It's actually very difficult to know. It's, we have surprisingly poor data on people's regular inner speech how much they do it how often they do it what proportion of the day they're doing it how many people do it you know what proportion of people for example never never do it at all we don't actually have very good data on that we've got better data on on children's private speech in fact it's partly because people haven't been interested in the question they haven't asked the question or they've made assumptions so some people just sort of say we do inner speech all the time as if it were a god-given fact you know, we need to ask that question. We need to ask it properly and do good research. And we're only really starting to do that now. But Russ Hurlbert, based on his years of DES uh, experimenting, estimates that some, looking back across all the people he's done sampling with, he estimates that somewhere between 20 and 25% of people's beeps involve inner speech. So if you use that as the best measure that we've currently got, that's a lot of people doing inner speech. There's a lot of inner speech going on, but it's by no means ubiquitous. It's by no means constant. How does, does there any information about what language we speak affect how we talk to ourselves and how we think? Again, I wish there were. It's a really fascinating question. When I'm giving talks on the topic, and one of my favorite things to do is to say to people, you know, is there anyone here bilingual? Many of your listeners will be bilingual and the people often put their hands up and say yes i'm bilingual and then i say to them okay so what language do you think in and they tell me they they speak english and hebrew and they do some thinking in hebrew and some in english and and i sort of say okay stop right there what you're saying is really fascinating but in a way the very fact that my question makes sense to you tells me all i need to know if it makes sense for you to think of thinking in a language that that tells me that you're doing inner speech, you're doing something like inner speech. Now, it is very interesting to ask whether different languages might afford different kinds of inner speech, in particular functions. So is Chinese particularly good, for example, at, you know, planning your own behavior? I don't know, but there are certain structural characteristics of Chinese that might mean that it is or might mean that it isn't. We just don't know. And I'd love to do some research on that topic. Hearing you say that, it reminds me of a story that a, a friend of mine told me. He's a photographer and his parents are French and he was raised as a, as a kid speaking French, then went to an English speaking school and lived in an English speaking community. So he's he's fully bilingual and, and fluent. Um, he told me an interesting story where on a trip to France, he met a French photographer and the two of them started talking about photography. But as soon as they switched from sort of talking about something else to talking about photography, my friend found he started to really struggle with his French in an unusual way for him. And he thinks it's because he'd never really thought or spoken or even read about photography in French before. So in that moment, in those moments, instead of just speaking French, he was having to translate from English to French. That makes perfect sense to me. My previous book was about memory, as you mentioned. And there's some really fascinating research looking at bilingual people and how they can remember 
events from their childhood, depending on whether they're recalling them in the language they spoke at the time or a language that they've learned more recently. And it seems to be that if you use the language of the events, in other words, the language of childhood, a bilingual person can remember further back or remember in, in greater detail. So it absolutely makes sense to me that nothing specifically about the languages themselves necessarily, but just about your experience of the language, your past history with those languages could really connect to different areas of expertise, different areas of interest in your life. I'm not bilingual, so unfortunately I can't give you any personal observations. So it seems clear that a lot of us tend to think, uh, at least part of the time, using words and language. And I'm wondering, are there people who don't think in this way? So people who don't use words or language in their own private speech? I suspect that there are some people who hardly ever use inner speech. And so that certainly seems to be what emerges from the DES research that Herbert and others have done. But we don't really have solid data on that. I suspect that it's fairly rare, but I'm sure it happens that's that people just never talk to themselves in their heads. But of course, what you've got to do is use a method like DES to get through the presuppositions. You know, you might have somebody who puts their hands up, puts their hand up and says, I never do in a speech. But if you actually then did DES with them, you might find that they they do. So it's a tr it's a really tricky question to answer. There's a very interesting um, connection to be made with some developmental disorders uh, and with sensory impairment. So, for example, do deaf people talk to themselves? There's a little bit of research that I describe in the book suggesting that, yes, they do. It very much depends on their exposure to language, just how much language they have heard. Uh, and it depends on whether you're asking, do they talk to themselves in a spoken language or in sign language. It seems that deaf people do have a form of inner speech, which we call inner sign. And it's a sort of version of sign language, but with some of the perceptual properties of the sign stripped away, sort of condensed. You mentioned condensed, and that was something else that uh, was interesting in the book to me, the idea that sometimes we speak to ourselves in very kind of robust monologues or dialogues with full sentences, but other times our our thoughts seem to be compressed, so just small little clips of phrases or moments. Uh, it's quite an interesting idea to think that we can think in both these ways. My inspiration in this research is the theory of the Russian psychologist Lev Vygotsky, who flourished in the 20s and 30s in, in the Soviet Union. He argued, it was really his idea, that inner speech comes from private speech, and that in turn comes from social speech, social dialogues. A big implication of that for me has been that if that's true, then our inner speech should also have the qualities of a dialogue. It really should be like a conversation with the self. But another thing that Vygotsky says is that as that language becomes internalized, as it becomes taken into the self, firstly to become private speech and then to become inner speech, the language changes. And one of the most obvious ways in which the language changes is that it becomes abbreviated, stripped down, it becomes condensed, becomes compressed. So we use shorter utterances, more compressed utterances in our inner speech compared to what we might say 
to ourselves out loud. And intriguingly, there's actually a finding that suggests that we can speak much faster in inner speech than we would if we had to say all that stuff out loud. And that, to me, fits with the idea that inner speech, in many cases, is compressed and condensed. But until we started to ask this question scientifically, there really wasn't any research on the topic. How do we actually study something like the speed of our inner speech? What kind of study design? I assume there might be there there must be some kind of clever way of getting at this information. But uh, can you talk a little bit about how we have started to figure out that sometimes we speak to ourselves in our heads faster than we would have uh, when we would say the same thing out loud? The study I mentioned actually measured electrical activity in the muscles of the larynx and the throat that are involved when we speak out loud and use them as a sort of proxy an indicator of how much inner speech we were doing and then ask people what did you think to yourself during that period of time and made the connection that way i think there's various problems with that sort of methodology one is that it sort of assumes a pure continuity between what we say out loud and what we say internally and i'm not sure that that's actually the best way of going about it so it may be that some inner speech doesn't leave any trace in our external muscles and it wouldn't actually if that were the case it wouldn't actually contradict Vygotsky's theory so I, I don't want to get too hung up on the speed of inner speech I don't think I think it's a really difficult thing to to measure is it so it sounds like there is quite often when there's inner speech going on uh, there's quite often some sort of physical remnant like you said the larynx sometimes moves as if sort of similarly to if we were speaking out loud am i understanding that correctly yes yes that certainly seems to be the case some of the time and when you're studying private speech in children you find this interesting transition from them saying the sentences out loud to themselves so that you or i could hear them to gradually over time they start to mutter to themselves and then you can see them moving their lips but maybe not even making any sound and you'll often find adults doing exactly the same thing you see you kind of watch see their lips moving they're not talking out loud they're not talking to you but you know they're doing some thinking so i think there are these interesting external manifestations of inner speech but what i wouldn't want to do is say that because somebody is showing none of these external signs they're not doing inner speech i think they could well still be doing inner speech but that it's become completely internalized and there's no external trace you you do talk in the book about the theory that inner speech emerges in childhood so can you walk us through that idea the idea is, is really quite simple, actually. Um, as I say, it's, it comes from the work of Lev Vygotsky, and he argued that babies are born into social worlds. They start interacting with others from the first days of life. They're, they're geared up. They're hardwired to interact with others from the very first days. Initially, they do it through gestures and other sorts of communication. Then when language comes along, something very special happens because they can start to engage in social dialogues. They can have conversations in words with other people. And over time, that turns into private speech where they're having those same conversations, but they're having the conversations with themselves. And then over time, that turns into inner speech. So it's still happening in words. It's still directed at the self, but it's happening completely silently and internally. And then that raises the interesting question of what is it for? So we use dialogues, we have dialogues with other people to do stuff, to plan stuff, to work stuff through, to sort out the meaning of things. And the idea is that private speech and inner speech can have the same sort of power. 
so we can use language. When we start turning language back on ourselves, which Vygotsky says we do in childhood, we can start to control ourselves in the way that we can control other people with language, or we can try to, you know, try to affect other people's behavior with language. So we can start to regulate ourselves in the same way that we regulate other people. And that, for Vygotsky, is an important part of how we gain control over our own behavior, how we develop the ability to plan, to prepare for the future, to make sense of our experience. So at what age do kids actually start talking to themselves out loud with this kind of private speech? Well, I've learned from doing work in developmental psychology and writing a book on the topic that you should never be too hard and fast about ages <laughs> right. because it will always cause someone to worry that their child isn't doing it or is doing it or whatever. But very, very roughly, well, I think children get going with it, with it very early on, almost as soon as they... Uh, develop language but I, I suppose the peak time for private speech is somewhere for most kids is somewhere between age three and about age eight age three is when children have started to develop enough facility with language that they can turn it to these purposes they turn it to these effective purposes as they're playing as they're solving problems and so on by age eight kids are at school and there's probably quite a strong social force to keep doing that stuff with language but to do it silently in your head so those are really the peak times i'd say if you can if you can catch a glimpse of a four or five year old child playing alone or with other kids with some toys that they like or a, a, a challenging puzzle then you might very well hear them talking to themselves it's uh reading about the idea of talking to yourself out loud uh made me uh, not laugh but reminded me of how much my own mother used to um note that I would talk to myself all the time as a teenager and actually in, as an adult as well. I, I am known as someone that talks to themselves out loud, sometimes infuriatingly much, um, which I found kind of interesting. Is is there any research on adults who continue to talk to themselves uh, out loud as well as, as sort of in, in their heads? Yes, there is a little bit of research. One of the implications of Vygotsky's theory, as I've just sketched it, is that this is something that happens in childhood and then is finished. So you do your private speech out loud as a child. You sort of get the hang of using words to regulate your own behavior. You take it all inside and then game over. You've, you've sort of developed in a speech and you're the, you're the finished article. We probably need to rethink that aspect of Vygotsky's theory, if in fact that's what he said. It's not clear that he did actually argue that. Adults use private speech. They use it a surprising amount. Uh, we don't have particularly good data on it, but I'm certainly finding through the reaction to this book that lots and lots of people are saying to me, I'm so pleased to hear this because I talk to myself all the time. <laughs> I, I, like you, I talk to myself the whole time. I think as I get older, some of the social pressures about not doing it, I kind of care less about. So I do it you know, constantly. And, you know, my wife is always finding me muttering away to myself as I, um, you know, going about uh, what I'm doing. So it's not a surprising, it's not an uncommon thing. It's not a worrying thing. Wherever that idea came from, that it's the first sign of madness, I really don't know, because it seems to be extremely common. It seems to be extremely useful. People talk to themselves because it has useful functions. Well, I remember for quite a while, I lived by myself, and I would often talk to myself at home, I think just to kind of have a voice. 
outside of the silence of my house sometimes, just, you know, to, to break the silence a little bit. And, uh, and then I got a cat and started talking to the cat instead, which felt slightly less crazy. I think that's an important reason why, why people do it, sure. Interestingly, there's some evidence to show that children, when children are talking to themselves, they actually do it more when there are other people around. Really? It's not a solo, it's not a solitary thing necessarily. That to, there's a good reason why that might be the case, and it's to do with the fact that, that this language does initially have a social focus. So for a time, you're kind of talking, you're sort of half talking to that other person, but actually you're starting to talk to yourself just as much and that's why the social context seems to encourage it but i think we do it in all sorts of contexts we do it when we're totally alone we do it when there are other people around we sometimes do it to kind of distinguish ourselves from the other people who are around uh, there's a whole bunch of reasons we do it we do it to express emotion we do it for company we do it to plan what we're going to do we do it to think about the past i think there are a whole bunch of reasons why we do it and we shouldn't be ashamed of doing it We'll be back with more Science for the People right after this. Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. You're listening to Science for the People. I'm your host, Rochelle Saunders. One of the other things that made me think a little bit in your book was talking about a sort of dialogue-based thinking, uh, which is something that I think many people do. I certainly do it, uh, speak to myself as sort of like a conversation with myself in my head. But when I started to think about that a little more, it kind of struck me as a little bit unusual. Like, why wouldn't I in my own head have a monologue all the time rather than conversing with myself? So that's kind of an interesting idea, too, that there we can have both a, an internal monologue, but also there's like an internal dialogue, sometimes between multiple voices. Absolutely. And that's one of the aspects of Vygotsky's theory that has interested me the most. He didn't, because he died terribly young, he didn't get a chance to, f to finish his work off, really. Um, but he did argue that inner speech should have a dialogic structure because of how it develops out of social conversations. So our inner speech should be dialogic, at least for some of the time. You find evidence that children's private speech sometimes has a dialogic quality. If you catch sight of these kids playing with their toys, you're likely to find themselves asking themselves questions and then answering those questions them themselves. Um, and I think we probably do the same thing in inner speech for some of the time. It's very hard to say exactly how common it is because we've only just started to ask the question. It's only in the last few years that we've published the first research showing that dialogic inner speech is even a thing, really. So there's much, much more to be done. Have we done any uh, scans of the brain to see if there's a, a difference in, in what's happening in the brain when someone is thinking in a sort of di dialogue-based pattern versus more of a monologue? Well, this is one of the things I was most keen to do when we started to ask these questions about the quality of people's inner speech. So, you know, the extent to which it's dialogic, the extent to which it's condensed. And we had an opportunity to do just that in the brain scanner. 
rather than capturing in a speech naturally as it happened, which is, a, as we've seen, is a very difficult thing to do. What we did is we constructed a task where people had to produce some in a speech. And they, they did it under two conditions. In one condition, they were producing a monologue. In another condition, they were producing a dialogue. And in each case, we gave them a particular scenario to think about. So, for example, the scenario might be going back to your old school. And in the monologic condition, you are giving a speech to, your, to some students. You're standing up there on the stage and you're just churning it out for the students. In the dialogic condition, you're having a conversation with your old head teacher. So everything is the same, hopefully, about those two different conditions, except for the fact that you are doing monologue in one case and dialogue in the other case. And the reasoning was this. We thought that in monologic in a speech, you get the standard kind of brain activity patterns that you always get when you ask people to do this kind of thing in the scanner. And basically your language system, which for most people is, is centered in the left hemisphere, starts to activate. But we figured that in dialogic in a speech, things would be slightly different because when you're doing a dialogue, you don't just have to do some language, you have to process language, but you've got to do something else as well. And that is you've got to somehow represent the point of view of the person you're having the dialogue with. You've got to represent that other perspective in the dialogue. So we figured that in dialogic in a speech, you get some language activation, just like you do in the monologic condition, but you'd also get some activation in parts of the brain that we know are important for representing other people's perspectives, the so-called theory of mind networks. And that's exactly what we found. We found that the difference between the two conditions was best described as an interaction between a language system and a kind of thinking about other people's minds system. So I guess some of the implications for this, if those two, if those areas were lighting up when we're having our own internal dialogue-based thoughts might be that we're trying to actually sort of have another perspective on ourselves? Exactly. We're taking a perspective on what we're saying. And that other perspective, I call it the open slot, because you can put anything into that open slot. You can have a conversation with yourself. You can have an internal dialogue with a friend, with a partner, with a parent. You can have an internal dialogue with somebody who has died with somebody who never existed, with an imaginary being, with God. You can have an internal dialogue with all sorts of other entities. The key thing is that there's two perspectives. There's two perspectives feeding off each other. That's what makes it a dialogue. And I guess the thing I've been most interested about in, in this research is trying to spell out what's going on in the mind and brain when, when that's happening. So uh, the book transitions from talking about the sort of quote unquote normal ways people talk to themselves and use internal monologues or dialogues and voices uh, to a discussion of people who hear voices and experience what we would generally think of as auditory hallucinations. So first of all, can you maybe give us a definition of a hallucination? I mean, is there an official definition? A hallucination is a sensory experience that happens in the absence of anything that could have caused that experience. So it's seeing something that isn't there or hearing something when nobody's around to have spoken. In the case of what we call auditory verbal hallucinations, more commonly known as hearing voices, this is an experience of speech of some sort of act of communication when nobody else is around to have possibly spoken. It's associated, of course, with severe mental illness. It's the usual connection that people make is with schizophrenia 
We know that it's involved with a whole range of other psychiatric disorders. So everything from post-traumatic stress disorder to eating disorders can involve hearing voices. We know that quite a significant small minority of ordinary people hear voices quite regularly and they're not mentally ill. They don't meet the criteria for mental illness. There's nothing wrong with them. They're living quite happily with their experiences, but they're having, they're having it quite a lot. They're hearing voices quite a lot. And then there's a much bigger, still a minority of people, so maybe somewhere between 5 and 15% of regular people, who will have occasional one-off fleeting experiences of hearing a voice when nobody was around to speak. So far from being something that just means schizophrenia, hearing voices is being understood as something which is a part of human experience, possibly a slightly unusual part of human experience, but something that cuts across historical periods cuts across cultures and geographical areas. It's something that happens to people. And what's interesting to, to me and my colleagues is to try and understand more about why it happens, what it's like, how people deal with the experience. So on the face of it, it might seem a bit odd to put this experience, this ordinary experience of talking to yourself in your head, up against what many would see as a scary, frightening, worrying, troubling kind of experience. The simple reason for doing that in my case was that that's what people had done who, who were looking at this stuff before me. They had argued that people hear voices for a simple reason. What they're doing when they hear a voice is that they are actually producing some inner speech. But for some reason, they don't recognize it as their own work. They don't recognize that they themselves produce that inner speech. And so they experience it as an external voice. And this is really how I came into this topic, because I was doing this work on inner speech and private speech in children. And I saw that people in this other area of research, which for me was quite new, the area of psychiatry, were, were talking about hearing voices. And I thought, are they talking about the same thing? They talk, they've got an inner speech model of hearing voices. Is it like the inner speech that I talk about? So the last 10 years or so has really been about trying to put those two bodies of research together to see if they can inform each other. The upshot is that there seem to be good reasons for thinking that at least some voice hearing experiences are misattributed inner speech. In other words, it's your own inner speech that's happening, but for some reason you don't recognize it as your own. But that the inner speech model is not enough to explain the incredible richness of voice hearing experiences and other factors have to come into play. So what type of, of evidence have we got so far that it is connected to your own inner speech, but that you're misattributing as not being from yourself? There's some neuroscientific evidence to show that the usual pattern of communication within the brain in the language system doesn't work out in quite the same way in, in these are psychiatric patients who, who hear voices. So to try and put it very simply, there's a part of your brain towards the front on the left, known as Broca's area, which is really important in generating language. And there's a part of your brain a bit further back in the temporal lobe, known as Ver Wernicke's area, which is very important for perceiving speech. And what normally happens is that Broca's area, that bit at the front, as, it's, as it gets to work, it sends a little message through to Wernicke's area saying, you can reduce your response to what you're about to receive because you yourself have produced it. Okay, so it's like there's a little internal message saying, don't listen to what you're about to hear because it's you doing it. And there's a, a various bits of evidence suggesting that in, in psychiatric patients who hear voices, that message doesn't get through or it's degraded in some way or it's delayed or it just doesn't get through at all. 
It seems like there, what research that has been done with hearing voices has mostly been done with patients. So people who have a mental disorder or in psychiatric care or experiencing some kind of, um, of a problem with hearing voices. Has there been research done for the other group you talked about, which is people who hear voices but don't, uh, don't seem to have a mental disorder or aren't finding that problematic long term to live with? It's very important to say kind of about here that hearing voices for many people is an incredibly distressing, frightening experience. It's something that is hard to understand. It's something that is difficult for families and carers to understand. And it's something that comes with terrible stigma in the general uh, culture and community. It doesn't get a good press. And so it's a cause of extreme distress for, for many, many people. But as I've said, there are some people who hear voices quite regularly and have a neutral relationship or a troubled but coping well relationship or even a positive relationship with their voices. And they, you're quite right, it would be great to do some research with them. They're obviously in a small minority, but they are starting to take part in research and we're finding some fascinating uh, results from that research. So it seems, for example, very roughly speaking, that the voices heard by a patient compared to the voices heard by a non-patient are very similar in all sorts of ways. They're very similar in many of the phenomenological qualities. In other words, I mean aspects to do with what the experience is like, what it sounds like, what the pitch of the voice is, where the voice is located in space and so on. They're very similar in terms of what we know about what's going on in the brain when it happens. They seem to be the same experience with a couple of important differences. And mostly the, the, the strongest evidence is that the people who hear voices and are not distressed by them, their voices are nicer. I mean, it's an obvious fact, really. If you've got a voice telling you you're a bitch all day long, it's going to be really horrible. It's going to be really unpleasant. But if you've got a voice saying either neutral things, like just describing what you're doing, or giving you positive encouragement and advice and inspiration, you're going to have a very different emotional reaction to them. So it seems to be really important how people respond to the voices, what the content of the voices other qualities of what makes a voice distressing. And that's one of the things we're really trying to pin down at the moment. What is it about the experience that for some people makes it possible to live with it and for others makes it a living hell? Do we have any information on what might cause people to be more susceptible to hearing voices or if there is a certain type of brain or a way that a brain can develop or change that might make someone more susceptible to hearing voices? I don't think we have strong evidence for that. We know that there are uh, lots of people argue that psychotic disorders such as schizophrenia result from a neurodevelopmental problem. In other words, the brain doesn't develop in the right way. There's lots of uh, arguments for that. There's various bits of evidence that are really relevant to that point. But as I've said, hearing voices is not schizophrenia. Hearing voices is something that is commonly associated with schizophrenia and other psychotic disorders. So we, we can't say, although some people try to characterize a schizophrenic brain, I don't think it's particularly helpful to do that, but people do. 
it's not possible to characterize a, a voice hearing brain. That's partly because I think people hear voices for lots of different reasons. I think there are lots of different mechanisms that cause people to hear voices. One of the reasons that our view of hearing voices has changed so much over the last quarter century or so has been the rise of the so-called hearing voices movement. And this was a group of people who heard voices who got together around the world to say, we want to own our experience. We want to reclaim the meaning of our experience. We don't want to be told by psychiatrists that it's meaningless junk that our diseased brains are churning out. We think our experiences are important and meaningful. They can be very distressing and unpleasant, but they're meaningful, and we want to claim that back. Uh, one of the tenets of that movement has been that people hear voices for, for different reasons, but a very important one is to do with what has happened to them in the past, and particularly adverse events and ch childhood trauma. And in particular, there's a strong connection with childhood sexual abuse and hearing voices. That's not to say that everybody who hears voices experience childhood sexual abuse, of course, but there is there does seem to be a connection there. So many people in the hearing voices movement say, my voices are telling me something, my voices are meaningful, my voices have an emo emotional message for me. And that message is about the stuff that happened to me when I was young. And I need to listen to that message. I need to find out what this is about. And I need to come to terms with it and make sense of it. So just before we, we end, I'm curious, what do you think is the most interesting research on either self-talk or hearing voices happening right now? I'd love to know more about these different kinds of inner speech. I'd love to know more about how common it is for us to talk to ourselves in dialogues how common it is for inner speech to be compressed in the ways that it is. And I'd like to know how that maps on to different activations in the brain. You know, what's the brain doing? What's the language system doing when it's doing these different kinds of inner speech? It's also fascinating to see how research is starting to happen with people who hear voices but who don't have a psychiatric diagnosis. And I think they're going to be really interesting people to study to help us to understand what are the mechanisms in the brain that are going on, what are some of the possible cognitive mechanisms, the role not just of inner speech, but of other factors such as memory, such as other aspects of, of our cognitive psychology that are involved in leading to somebody hearing a voice. So what do you think are the most important open questions, the ones that nobody's really researching yet, but that you'd like to see more people looking into? We not only understand that inner speech comes in many different forms, we also understand that hearing voices comes in different forms. And those different forms, some, some hearing voices experiences seem to be something to do with inner speech, others seem to be intrusions from memory from a traumatic event. Those different forms very likely have different developmental pathways. They come about in different ways. They probably work differently in the brain. So if we can get better at teasing apart these different kinds of experience, rather than just lumping it all in together and calling it schizophrenia, let's not do that. Let's look at the richness of voice hearing experiences. Let's look at the range of walks of life that it attends, that it is involved in. And let's try and understand how different kinds of voice hearing experience possibly have different mechanisms underlying them. And I don't think that means trying to make the experience go away through science. I don't think people who find their voices meaningful should worry too much about that when nobody's trying to make them go away just by trying to understand how they work. For some people, hearing voices is a really meaningful, uh, powerful, essential part of their identity. 
and we don't want to destroy that through our clumsy science but we can we can start to understand the variety of the experience and how it comes about in the mind and the brain it's really interesting with the the idea and the experience of voice hearing especially for people who who aren't finding it distressing it does seem that there is this line of trying to understand it but also not wanting to medicalize it i think it's a worry for many people who hear voices and who find their experience meaningful i think there is a worry that scientists will come along and try and make it evaporate make try and explain it away i think that's a very understandable worry it's not what we're about we're very interested in the meaning of experience and, and understanding it alongside the science we haven't mentioned voice hearing experiences that happen in a religious or a spiritual context where the experience has an incredible richness it has huge meaning for the person and i think we can do good science on those experiences by taking them seriously by saying this is something that's happening to someone let's try and understand it yeah it it's uh it definitely is i think part of it is is that there is like you said before such a stigma around the idea of hearing voices and that probably that individual like we tend to assume that the way we think is just the normal way that everybody thinks um, i know reading this book made me think a lot more about the differences in the way that other people's brains work and their sort of day-to-day -day thought processes i mean one of the one of the conversations that came out of reading this book was my partner and i were talking about our experience of hearing music in particular music that has a vocal element to it and and my my partner just goes around essentially with an ipod on in his brain all the time he it plays constantly most pieces of music that he he's heard in his life kind of go in there they're very rich they're very vibrant he he really explains it as like listening to a, a radio in his head whereas for myself uh when i i get a song stuck in my head or i'm hearing music which happens compared to him quite rarely um for me it's more like my internal monologue is singing the song i don't get the same kind of richness of experience that he seems to and until we had that conversation until reading this book it wasn't really something that i had thought about that much the idea that other people's experience of you know that musical earworm might be very different from mine i think it's really important that we are constantly aware of, of these differences sometimes scientific psychology seems to be only interested in the general underlying principles that connect all human beings minds and brains and that's important but there's a whole lot of other stuff that that will that will miss out i think other people's minds will be very varied places to be uh it's interesting that you mention music i think there's a very powerful connection to be made research wise into musical hallucinations which are also auditory they, they're not as verbal as hearing voices although they can involve words they can involve lyrics and and choral music um, is there is there an analogy to inner speech that is to musical hallucinations what inner speech is to auditory verbal hallucinations? So in the book, I talk about the idea of an inner music, the idea that for some of us, at least, there is music going on quite a lot of the time. Could it be that that inner music, through being misattributed in the same way as is supposed to happen with hearing voices, isn't recognized as one's own work and so is hallucinated as a bit of a bit of music uh, coming from outside i'd love to know more about that we've just started to do some research on that topic and of course musical hallucinations come in very many different varieties you mentioned earworms which are very common 
but there are other varieties such as full-blown hallucinations where people are literally stopping and looking around and saying where did that come from to other experiences which are referred to as musical hallucination sorry musical hallucinosis where the person hears something as if it were a hallucination as if it were a sort of vivid external experience but they kind of know that it's their own hallucination there are these gradations of experience that we could try and map on to inner speech and voice hearing and it could be very very constructive i definitely think that sometimes in for the idea of how brains work or how our thoughts work or some psychology topics we do spend a lot of time trying to figure out what's quote unquote normal and trying to kind of pigeonhole that a little bit and it is interesting to open up normal to be much more widely inclusive that normal can be a wide diversity of things not just one particular pattern absolutely and i think that's a very powerful force against the horrible stigma that I mentioned attaches to hearing voices. If we can help people to understand that hearing voices doesn't mean schizophrenia, that it is involved in a whole range of different experiences and different walks of life, then start some of that stigma will start to collapse and people will feel happier about talking about hearing voices. It is starting to change. I mean, a lot has happened, particularly in, in the media in recent years, where voice hearing is starting to be discussed as something that isn't taboo, that isn't scary, that is a part of what happens to people. Uh, there's more work to be done. There's still terrible stigma. We'll keep trying. I think it is helpful that more people are, like you say, talking about it, that we see it a little bit more. There, There is, I think, no better normalizing force sometimes than being exposed to an idea or being exposed to people um, who are hearing voices and completely normal, as we would say, <laughs> with heavy air quotes on normal. And that's what I've tried to do in this book. It's to say... Here are all these different experiences. They, they happen. They're a thing. Okay. They, people hear the voice of God. Writers hear the voices of their characters. Children hear the voices of their imaginary friends. People with psychiatric diagnosis hear scary voices saying horrible things. Ordinary people walk, you know, sitting on the subway hear themselves talking in their head. All of this stuff happens. Let's put it together. Let's see what the connections are. Let's see where the similarities and differences are rather than seeing hearing voices as this scary thing that has to be put in a box and never talked about. And I hope that that will have some effect. I hope people will get that reaction from reading my book and see that there are so many interesting connections among all these different things. We don't have to try and reduce one thing to another. We can celebrate the richness. And most importantly, we can help the people who are distressed by those experiences. Charles, thanks so much for joining me today. A really interesting book. And it certainly, for me, uh, incited a lot of conversation in my household. Thank you very much. If you're interested in Charles' books, his research, or the Hearing the Voice project, you can find links to all these things and more in the show notes for this episode, which you'll find on our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. 
Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders. <laughs>